Good evening, everybody. This is such a beautiful evening, isn't it? We have been uh, so warmly welcomed from the minute we got off the plane on Friday evening and went from people group to people group and office and home and church. And there's just a lot that we can learn from all of you. So thank you for welcoming us and taking such good care of us. Um, My talk tonight is titled, Creating Shelters, Adding to the Beauty. And I told Melody as we talked back and forth on email a a month or so ago that I really love to talk about this subject. It's something that it seems to grow richer and deeper for me as I age. And so I hope it's meaningful to you too at whatever stage of life you're in because we're all in lots of different stages represented in this room. Um... I'd like to begin tonight with a scripture to give us a starting place for thinking about what it means to create shelters. And that scripture is Proverbs 24, 3 and 4. By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. In scripture the word house is usually symbolic of a people. So whether that's the house of Israel that it's referring to or the church of Jesus Christ. But it also is referring to the household of an individual or a family. And I think this passage could be understood in any of those contexts. But tonight our main landing place is the home. And what it might mean to create a place that brings shelter and welcome to friends and family and strangers, providing the rooms of their life with rare and beautiful treasures. It's the kind of treasure that runs deep, that's born from our union in Christ, and that's fueled by a Christian imagination, an imagination that is, as we are more and more steeped in the word of God and led by the Holy Spirit, we're fueled by that imagination. It's God's work of creating treasure that won't wear out. And we get to participate as we care for people's lives. So as you follow along with me and you're thinking about the importance of place, please take what you can from these ideas um, and apply them to whatever setting you spend the bulk of your life in. Because I think we, we spend a lot of our life in different places and we're creating environments in those places all the time. That could be in places of business, classrooms, church buildings, art studios, and definitely our homes. So wherever your vocation takes you, make application wherever it fits, because we need welcoming shelters everywhere where there are people. As a foundation for understanding the concept of place, the first two chapters of Genesis are really helpful and comforting and reality-affirming, because we're reminded that God put Adam and Eve in a physical geographical place, a garden in Eden, and gave them a life to live there and work to do. And so it's always been. We don't live our Christian lives in the abstract or in general. We live them in very specific local places, in a country, a city, a neighborhood, a home, around a kitchen table, so on. Um... Does anybody in this room of all of you women know of the author Wendell Berry? One person? Two people? 
Well, he's a Kentucky farmer, he's a poet, he's an essayist, and he's a novelist, and he's a really very thoughtful Christian, and I love his books. But he, he doesn't write for Christians only. He writes in a language that everybody can understand, and so his books have really influenced a wide range of people. Um, a few months ago, somewhere in the winter, I even saw an interview with him in Gourmet Magazine, which I thought was kind of an odd place for him to show up. But then I realized it really wasn't because he's been writing for a long time about place and community and good rhythms of living and uh, eating local foods and just a lot of things that people are thinking about now and writing about now. He was writing about those things a long time ago. But anyway, he's written one of my very favorite novels in the whole world, and it's titled Hannah Coulter. And the book is the story of Hannah Coulter, who's a woman in her late 70s, and she's been widowed twice, and she's looking back on her life, and she's sorting through her memories about her work and her community and her marriages and her children and her grandchildren. And along the way, she comes to tell about the house and the land where she lived with her second husband, whose name was Nathan. She says, sometimes I imagine another young couple, strong and full of desire, coming quietly into this old house that will be empty again of all that is of any use and will be stale and silent and dingy with dust. And they will see it shining before them as Nathan and I saw it 52 years ago. And I say to them, welcome, love each other, love this place and use it well. And that little sentence, love this place and use it well, is so beautiful to me. In a way, it's saying this house inhabits a story that's honorable and redemptive. Keep it going. Add to the beauty. It's not a story that's free from heartache or sin or hurtful words lashed out in anger. But because Jesus is with us, redeeming our stories, there's an emerging story of grace that's prevailing and it's beautiful. One of the things that I love about Sarah's song that was so beautifully sung a minute ago, Add to the Beauty, um, is that it's really such a great way of saying, I want to exercise my image-bearing capacity to create. I want to add good stories to the world. Is this working? It feels loose. I want to add good stories to the world and in my own small way participate in God's huge work of redemption. I want to imagine for the good of other people and then create out of my situation, my place, my gifts, my resources. And I know that's what Sarah is saying, and she says it very beautifully. As ordinary women keeping company with Jesus, we have an extraordinary mission to love, to do small things that add to the beauty, to make our small offerings and ask God to bless them. So... What could it mean for any one of us to love a place, no matter what stage of life we're in, and create a shelter and use it well? I understand the power of place more deeply now than I did even when I was writing my book and I was considering the importance of home and shaping the life of a family, um, as well as the impact of hospitality that reaches out beyond an individual or a family. But now I've got all these uh, years more, about seven or eight, nine more years of experience added on. 
And I think of creating shelters, and my husband thinks of it this way too, as creating a place where good can happen. And the good is everything from creating memories in a family setting to providing for the necessities of life to nurturing faith and compassion to hosting conversations, both small and ordinary and daily, to world-changing. We've had the real privilege of hosting a lot of conversations in our home and in our living room that have traveled out from there and went on to do good things in other places. Um, Melody told a little bit, and I'll just, just try to summarize it. It's kind of hard to summarize, but my husband and I share what we call a vocation of art, hospitality, and biblical study in Nashville, in our home, the Art House. And the Art House is a remodeled country church that was, it's almost 100 years old right now. And um, But the main fo- focus of our work is to nurture and mentor young musical artists. Um, so we do that in many different kinds of ways. But we've been at this work since 1990, and so there have been different phases in all those years. And um, so even though it, right now it's a little more focused towards a certain group of people, in the past it has been open to the community, things we've done. and But always God has brought us people for all kinds of reasons. And, and that could be from one or two at a time to sit over coffee and talk or a meal or to come for an overnight um, all the way to the crowds of folks <clears throat> who've come to hear a speaker or be a part of an artist retreat or something like that. So there have been lots of conversations in the, the sanctuary living room of our home, to the kitchen, to the hallway, to the garden, um, just all kinds of places. It's in our family and then between all of these people who've come. And one important conversation that always sticks out in my mind because it's pretty unforgettable, is the year that we hosted Bono from the group U2. And if you know music, you probably have heard of Bono. If you don't know music, you might know him for his work um, for the African people. But he was traveling around the United States in 2002, and he was working hard at that point to awaken the American church to the African AIDS and famine emergency, and our house was one of his stops. So we gathered about uh, 50 musicians who were also Christians from the Nashville area. And Bono sat at our fireplace, and he told us the stories of Africa. And afterwards, he prayed with us. And as we came to a close, he picked up my son's acoustic guitar. And that's because my husband had very strategically set this guitar (laughs) right next to the fireplace where he was sitting in hopes that he would pick it up. And he led us all in singing, They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love. Well, it was quite a a moment in the history of our house, as you can imagine. But beyond the excitement of having one of the world's most famous rock stars sitting at our fireplace, truly the most meaningful thing about it was that we had all gathered together in the name of Christ to care about what it means to be global neighbors to a people in great need. And the other artists that were present that day, they would go out and they would educate and influence their audiences. And then the ripple effects for good would just keep going and going and going. And and now a lot of those small conversations that Bono was having back then have turned into one gigantic conversation called the One Campaign. And two million people have gotten involved to 
fight global AIDS and extreme poverty. And it's just, a, it's just one example of how small conversations can light a big fire that can go out and change the world. Well, you might not be hosting Bono in your living room. Few of us are. But your home is a place where you're hosting all kinds of conversations all the time because we're creating an, a place for relationships. And in that context, lots of important conversations happen between husbands and wives, parents and children, with our friends, with people who uh, become our friends because they've been invited into our lives. As strongly as I feel about the importance of our art house work and the teaching and the mentoring and the talk that goes on, I also feel like really some of the most important conversations I'm hosting right now are with my grandchildren, whose names are Alfie and Bridget. They're three and four years old. And um, I think, and I think grandmothers are allowed to say this, that they're some of the best grandchildren ever. Don't you guys feel like we're all allowed to say that about our grandkids? But um, anyway, this past year, we've been walking through a divorce with our son and our daughter-in-law and these little children. And it's been a really painful passage, a very hard year. But we felt like we could offer something good and comforting to the little kids in terms of the shelter and continuity of our home the memories that we make together, the books we read, the games we play, the meals we share, the interesting people that they get to meet at our place, and just all the different things that home means for us in our particular life. And when my own kids were growing up, I always really had a strong sense that the family dinner table was really important and that it was important to work at gathering us all there as regularly as we could. And research continues to show that that's really uh, true. That eating together around the table has all kinds of benefits, everything from better nutrition to better language skills, because we're learning, we're teaching the art of conversation as we stop and look at one another and listen to each other and ask about our days. Um, it's creating a sense of belonging that has the potential to shield kids from experimenting with things that are harmful to them. So it can be kind of a really big deal. So I feel like I can provide something important in this area for my little grandchildren, especially since the shape of their own family is changing. And I know that um, when you're a single parent, trying to juggle everything on your own, it's hard to have consistency with the dinner table. So whenever I can, I try to have a meal around the table when my son is there and my grandkids are there. A lot of times, uh, my granddaughter Bridget, she stands on a chair. Actually, most of the time, she wants to stand on a chair and help me. And it's, it's a good, you know, we get a good mess going. But um, the time we spend together doing these things is part of the memory, too. So although it's complicated, it's worth it to me. I'm just seeing a little, something larger you know, rather than just the moment of complication. Because we're talking, I'm teaching her things in the kitchen that are important to me to pass down to her. And now that her brother is getting older, he wants to stand on a chair too, and now it's really complicated, but <laughs> it's good also. And then sometimes I feel like it really wasn't worth the effort. They're so little, their attention span for a meal is pretty short. But other times I feel like we're getting somewhere.
if we have conversations and we laugh and the kids actually eat the food, then I'm encouraged. <laughs> but all that just to say, the conversations that we're hosting in our home are important at whatever stage of life that we're in. And I really hope those times in the kitchen and around the table become an important part of those kids' memory, something that they take with them into the rest of their lives. My grandmother had a great effect on my life, and I have taken memories of her all the way to right now. I can tell you she's still the most influential person probably ever in my life. Um, so I have that in the back of my mind, you know, but I have no guarantees, and none of us do. We're just putting stuff out there. We're hoping some of it sticks that has meaning past the moment. And that's really a lot of what caring for people's lives is all about. You're working from a place of faith and hope and love. You're hoping to bring a little bit of light into the dark places. We're dreaming, we're praying, we're imagining, we're creating. Hoping to add those good stories. Um, to people that we know, people's lives that we know intimately as, the, as well as those that we come to care about because God wants us to be a welcoming people who reach out beyond ourselves and the confines of our individual lives and our families. So it's really impossible to talk about place from a Christian perspective without talking about hospitality because a hospitable shared life is all wrapped up in following Jesus the scriptures indicate that from beginning to end, and there's a lot of scriptures. If you look in a concordance somewhere in the back of your Bible, that can, and you just look up the word hospitality, it will take you all over the place in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and just a very short example, just two scriptures from the New Testament. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, and that's Romans 12:13. And don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And that's Hebrews 13 too. But hospitality has a thousand different looks for any one of us. Because it's grounded in our real lives. And we all have different lives. We have different gifts. We have different interests. The needs we come across are specific to whatever our work and callings are. Whether those work and callings are in the home or out of the home. Um... It's specific to our geographic locations, the cities we live in, the neighborhoods we live in, the seasons of life we're in. You might be somebody who's in a stage of life where all you can possibly handle is welcoming your kids' friends in or maybe inviting your neighbor over for coffee. And that is so right and legitimate. Um, I really do believe there's a seasonal aspect to hospitality. We can give in different ways at different times of life. Um, God calls us to many different ways and many different avenues to live out the scripture in Matthew 25 that talks about feeding the hungry, giving a drink of water to somebody who's thirsty, caring for the sick, inviting the stranger. But the main thing to remember is that hospitality is a way of life. It's fundamental to who we are as followers of Jesus and then God calls some of us to have a greater emphasis to hospitality as part of a life work. But we all, um, as my husband said in the service this morning, we're either generalists so that we all have a general calling or we're specialists that we get to, you know, more gifted as we practice the callings he's called us to.
But anyway, there's a book I've been reading off and on. It's titled Keeping House, The Litany of Everyday Life. It's by a woman named Margaret Kim Peterson. And she says, a Christian home properly understood is never just for one's own family. A Christian home overflows its boundaries. It's an outpost in the kingdom of God where the hungry are fed and the naked are clothed and there's room enough for everyone. And that language inspires me, the way she's put that. And then for those of you who live alone or with roommates, there's another wise woman. Her name is uh, Susan McCauley, and she has written, Many homes rich in life and hospitality that hold a strong place in the community are created by single persons or by combinations of people other than husband and wife. From ancient biblical days onward... uh, Sorry, guys. I'm so bad at this. I live next to a recording studio, but I don't do anything in it, so is that okay? All right. Um, From ancient biblical days onwards, believers have models of single and married people creating homes. So one of the things that really hinders a welcoming lifestyle is to associate hospitality with entertaining, perfection, and performance, and then get paralyzed because you can't live up to the image. So instead, think of it as extending the welcoming heart of God and offering the relational connection that people are hungry for. If hospitality is truly a part of life, it takes place in the midst of a life lived. And while hospitality is not at all always about food, oftentimes it is. People come under your roof, they get hungry sooner or later. (laughs) So there are definitely times for lavish giving when we feed people. A room that's tended with care and a meal that takes time and skill to prepare is a really good gift. The lingering conversation, the stories told, the memories made, they make us more human, more thankful to God for these gifts of beauty and good food and relationships. But then there are also those times when we're planning on having cereal for dinner or opening a can of Campbell's chicken noodle soup. And if on that same day, just imagine, you're planning on the Campbell's chicken noodle soup, somewhere you're out and about and you cross paths with somebody who really needs a conversation and the warmth of a home and a kitchen table with people eating together. And if you understand hospitality as entertaining and perfection, you'll miss the moment here. And you'll think, oh, I couldn't possibly invite anyone in right now. The house is a mess. The cupboards are bare. But if you understand it as a practice that's free from performance, that's much more about giving yourself away and offering warmth and availability, the ministry of presence goes a long way. Just being present with somebody, and that's oftentimes all that's needed. If you understand hospitality as much more that rather than perfection, you'll probably invite that person in, and things will be different for you and for them because you did. Hospitality is transformative, and its riches are relational. And then I'll tell you a little secret here. Once hospitality moves out of the realm of special occasion and into a lifestyle, the scripture in 1 Peter 4, 9, 
that says offer hospitality to one another without grumbling is the most challenging hospitality scripture of all because you will grumble if you don't grumble out loud you'll grumble in your heart and I know this from lots of experience so I'm telling the truth many many times you'll welcome people with great joy with inner reserves for giving and listening and receiving them and serving them and other times it will feel like it's just too much and with prayer and practice you get better and better at knowing when you're at your limit and you really can't respond and when you need to open your arms one more time with the grace and the strength that only God can give honestly in our life um, which we we have been God has been bringing us people since we came to faith um, in 1982 so it's been a long many years of learning this whole thing and sometimes I've really just had it with the loss of privacy and I don't want to go to the grocery store one more time or my introvert nature is overwhelmed from being with people all the time and I'm really uh, if any of you introverts out there you know what I mean you get close to internal combustion you just feel like you're gonna explode from the inside if you don't get it just a little space but whatever the reason when the weariness in the internal monologue start up I need two things first I need right theology in those moments and hours and days it is so easy to fall under condemnation and I'm faced with the thoughts in my head and the state of my heart and it is not pretty and it's not sweet and I can't uh, and I'm not under any illusions about myself anymore so I need to go back again and again to the gospel and be reminded that my standing is in grace my acceptance comes through Christ alone and not through my performance and that's really important the second thing I probably need is a break and in all of our years of practicing hospitality my husband Chuck and I've learned that in order to continue offering it there are also times to rest from it times where privacy really is absolutely necessary because the heart of hospitality is being available to others and because of that reason it can be really really draining without times of pulling back our inner resources become uh, dry our giving becomes strained and it's not a good gift for anybody so in our household we're constantly constantly trying to discern when to say yes when to say no but we can't always control things and many many times we can't control things at all sometimes people's needs just outweigh our weariness and so we're drawn back to Jesus in those times over and over and over again asking for his strength and our weakness I think hospitality is something I'm going to be learning about for the rest of my life I really do in its simplicity and in its grander moments because like any other aspect of care you learn as you go and you have different seasons <clears throat> when my husband and I came to faith in 1982 it was the beginning for both of us in learning to take the role of place seriously and it was the beginning of thinking about using imagination and creativity in serving other people before that we'd been married for seven years and we'd always been in some sort of artistic community or working relationships with other artists but we'd never connected the concept of artful living across the whole of life 
and we'd never attached it to love before. So after we um, came to know Jesus and began studying the Bible and reading books, and um, we picked up some books by Francis and Edith Schaefer, who I don't know if you, a lot of you know about, but they've been people who have influenced a lot of, a lot of people say over the last, I guess since about the 1950s. But they, so they really influenced our philosophy as we, as we began to grow a philosophy for all these things. And they pointed out that Christians above all people should be artful and creative because we're children of our heavenly father the supreme artist, the one who created all things and created beauty. So a lot of things clicked for me personally through reading Edith Schaefer's books. And I came to understand in those days, and that was a long time ago now, that I could invest all kinds of thought and imagination and labor in the artwork of caring for a home and a family and for people in general. Those were really revolutionary ideas for me at the time. It was something that I'd never thought about in that way before. In the earlier days of our marriage, we did have a motto for our home life, or at least I did. And it was summed up in the bumper sticker on our car, which said, The revolution begins at home. And there was a big power power fist next to the words. Are any of you old 70s feminists? You remember the sisterhood is powerful? fist. So as a good mid-70s feminist, I wanted to break down sexual stereotypes on the home front. And that's a good thing. That was a good thing. It still is a good thing. Because biblically, it's a good thing because we're all meant to serve each other. And fixed, unbending stereotypes don't fit a life of serving. But the larger law of love did not fuel our thinking back then. And so it led to a lot of scorekeeping and arguing Piles of dirty dishes left undone for days at a time. But not much at all that was good or helpful. So life in Christ was like breathing new air in so many ways. Because now we had a much larger story to guide us. And so with the seeds of our new understanding in place, we started tending to the life inside of our little home which at that time was a little house we rented, and it had green shag carpeting. It had a tiny kitchen. Um, All of our furniture, what what little we had was hand-me-down, and um, our kids were little at the time, two and five, or just about turning that. Um, Prior to our conversion, we'd lived through some really, really difficult years of marriage, and we came close to not making it. We came very close to not making it. So from that vantage point, we were really mindful of these gifts, the gift of a little home, the gift of a marriage that was still together, um, the gift of our, uh, our children, just everything seemed like a gift. And so we were eager to share with the people God sent our way because we were grateful. We were probably the most grateful in those days than we've ever been since because we saw everything so differently. Um, and so God was sending us people we were inviting and really for the first time we were working hard at making a living and making a life and we worked at that together each doing our our different kinds of work and our different kinds of things to contribute Um, 
I think in many ways we started flourishing, not in a way that there was no more pain to live through and everything was tied up in a happy Christian bow. Not at all like that. But maybe we had more resources to deal with the hard things in life because we had more times of joy and more times of community as well as a sense of belonging inside of our own family. And maybe it was that we began experiencing the whole of our humanness instead of only a tiny part of it. And then from that place, from the resources of our union with Christ, we had something to offer, not only each other, but other people too. Now, all these years later, which is, I don't know if I've got the math right, maybe 26 years later, close to that, and 18 years into our art house life, Our thinking about what it means to create a place where good can happen has had a lot of time to grow and mature. And my husband summed it really well up in a book he's written called New Way to Be Human. So I just want to quote him just real shortly. He says, Caring for God's creativity, whether that means music or people in need on the other side of the world, is what shapes our home life and our ad hoc art house community. We promote storytelling and storied living not through well-executed, easily-defined programs, but by creating the environment and potential for good to occur. And it all stems from the belief that home can and should be an instrument of grace, an engine of truth and beauty. So now we know that our ability to live artfully and our need for beauty, all of our need for beauty, is something to take seriously. And that's in creating a home for our family as well as creating a place to invite others in. It's back to the idea of setting the stage, You're creating an environment for relationships. You are like a designer, like a set designer and a lighting director, and you're just putting all kinds of thought and effort into what might people need, what can you give. And so we've worked at it in all kinds of ways through food and gardens and color and architecture because we're thinking about serving people through all of their senses, just like you guys have been served as you walked into this place tonight, through sight, through smell, through taste, through touch, through sound. Um, All of those things have been thought of as you've been served tonight. Oftentimes people might not realize they're being cared for We might not think about it when we're being cared for on all those levels. You might not stop to analyze it, but you feel it, don't you? I really do. Um, And so when we're doing art house events, especially for larger crowds, I'm always especially aware, aware of the need to serve people holistically in all the ways I've mentioned because we're inviting people to grapple with the lordship of Christ over all of life to learn to think from a biblical grid about everything. And so we want to welcome them and care for them in a way that reflects God's care for us. And the Lord built an aesthetic dimension into creation, and he built it into us. So he gave us our senses so we can enjoy the richness of what it means to be human, to be able to make and appreciate things like paintings, knitted sweaters, crocheted afghans, garlicky, oniony, pot roast, beautiful cakes, gingerbread, songs, flower gardens, anything. Our desire for beauty is a reflection of our God who loves the beautiful. 
But our society places a really high value on speed and efficiency and getting things done in the quickest way possible. So the creation of beauty isn't practical. It's not convenient. And it's almost getting to be politically incorrect to do things in the caregiving realm that take time because as a culture we value convenience so much. But if we're convinced that going the extra mile actually matters, we're more likely to take the longer route to create meaningful experiences. And so we need a longer view towards what we're creating and we need really an artist's view. Van Gogh, I've heard it said, that he said, the highest form of art is fashioning human lives. And that is what Jesus is up to in us and in a small way, that's what we get to do in the lives of other people. There's definitely a short place for shortcuts and conveniences we all feel the pressure and overload of modern life, and we're grateful for things that help. Um, the more and more deadlines I have in these years, and I'm 52 right now, and, and I'm in school, and there are just deadlines, lots of different kinds. And then when we travel, and the more grateful I am that I live in a time where I can go and pick up food or I can hire help or I can do any number of things that add in the stresses of life that aid in the stresses of life but I don't want there to not be times when I'm resisting the shortcuts and refusing to cut off the part of myself that's made in the image of God to create Margie Hack is a friend of mine and she's a writer and she's she writes a wonderful publication called Notes from Toad Hall and she has something really great on her website that I think um, it, she said it really well. So I want to quote her. She's talking about Edith Schaefer's influence in her early life. And she says, Mrs. Schaefer modeled something very wonderful as she understood how important beauty and creativity are to the making of a home. At the time, it was revolutionary among evangelicals. She helped me to see that the intimacy and nourishment of even a simple meal can make all the difference for somebody who's hungry for God. Not only for friends and visitors, but for one's own family. I was able without guilt to go from plastic dishes and paper plates to pottery in China. That was a small thing in a way, but it represented moving from a throwaway, impersonal kind of culture to one that valued beauty, thoughtfulness, and time spent together that says, as another human being, you mean something to me. And you're worth this effort because you're made in the image of the creator God. And that's the crust of the biscuit right there. So please don't get hung up at the mention of paper plates versus china. There's a time for, for either one. That's not the argument here. The bigger idea is that whether it's a small effort or it's a large one, people... Are worth it because they're made in the image of God. They have infinite worth and a God-given dignity, and that's whether their lives reflect it or not. To know this and believe it is to always have the answer for why in the back of our minds. Why do people matter? Why are they worth all the trouble? We often only have one chance to do something that demonstrates love to somebody. We don't know whether we'll have the chance again. So we have to weigh our choices really carefully and ask God for wisdom um, to how to live in the midst of a culture that's often lost its way in the art of caring for human life. 
One of the really powerful things that we get to do as women, and as men too, but tonight our audience is women, so, and I think we probably tend to do this more, but is create rituals and traditions in our households. And so in closing tonight, I wanted to read a passage from my book that tells of something that we did in our family many years ago now. And I'd like to include it because I hope it'll inspire you to pray, to ask God for unique ideas for your own family, for your circles of relationships, both in the ordinary everyday times and the times when more lavish celebrating is called for. Soon after reading Hidden Art for the first time, I had an idea, which I will always know as a divine inspiration, to make Valentine's Day evening a time to celebrate the love within our little family. I posted an invitation in the kitchen asking everyone to come to a special dinner wearing their finest attire and bearing a love letter for each member of the family, a letter to be read aloud at the end of the meal. At that time, we lived in the house with the horrible silver elephant wallpaper in the kitchen. So I did what I could with the humble means available to set a festive festive table. I bought a red paper tablecloth from the dime store near our house and set out candles and a bouquet of flowers purchased from the grocery store. Molly and I, that's my daughter, and the boys, that's my son and my husband, wore their best shirts and ties which I have to tell you we don't normally do. We're a musician family, so everybody's very casual. Nobody wears shirts and ties, so that was special. We sat down to a meal of pasta with prosciutto, sugar snap peas, and spinach, fruit salad, crusty French bread, sparkling water, and wine glasses for toasting, and cheesecake for dessert. After the meal, we gathered in the living room and read our letters letters aloud, and then we spent the rest of the evening playing together and enjoying one another's company. For the next 10 years, we kept this tradition going. Our last family Valentine's Day dinner was held the year that Molly went away to college. And we found that instead of becoming less important as the kids got older, those times became more meaningful. The setting changed as we moved to different houses and even to a different state, but the meaning remained. Sometimes we shared the cooking, twice we ate in restaurants, and once Chuck and Sam created the dinner while Molly and I made dessert and decorated. The year we purchased the church, we read our letters from the loft balcony and danced to the music of Marvin Gaye. We celebrated in a variety of ways, but the letters were always central. Each year as Valentine's Day approached, moans and groans could be heard in the household. (laughs) The letters had to be written one more time. But every year I insisted, and the family went along, and each year we ended up in tears as the letters were read. The Valentine letters were a way of setting aside one day a year to lavish written words of love upon each other, to encourage and admire, to make formal apologies, and to say wonderful and heartfelt things that might not otherwise get said. This tradition offered our family a unique opportunity to care for one another that we would not have had without intentional celebration. I keep all those letters from our Valentine's Day ritual tucked away in a scrapbook. Whenever I get them out to revisit the memories, I am moved to tears of thanksgiving because the story that's told in them is affirming and life-giving and they preserve a time in our family that will never come again 
a time that passed all too quickly. And I know some of you women are facing empty nest, sending kids off to college for the first time, so you know what I mean. These treasures, these artifacts of love, remind us of those evenings and point us to the close relationships in the present that our past traditions have helped build. Um, My friend Nita Andrews says, Rituals and traditions become our interior secret, something of time, place, and history. There are patterns of beauty we can create, and our people will keep them as the place of their heart the place that they come from. And um, this last November, one of my closest friends, we're in a, uh, we have a friendship group of four women, and she's one of the four, and her husband was killed in a car accident, and she was left alone um, in her early 40s with two children, um, age 7 and 10, I think. But she had known about our Valentine's traditions, and so they, in their family, had been doing that for a lot of years. So she told me that after her husband died, she realized she had all these letters in a box, both from him to the girls and from all of them to each other. But the, the greatest part about it was that they had his letters to the girls, and the, so those, the girls would have those you know, for the rest of their lives to hang on to. In summary, we all need a vision for a coherent, artful life, one that's fueled by the love of God and the love of neighbor, and it connects across the whole of our lives. With eternity in view and our feet planted firmly on the soil of God's creation, we can embrace life, its beauty, and the goodness of God. We could love the people in our life with creativity and passion. We can bring life into the dark places, bowing down to Christ in increasing measure when the pressures inside and outside become overwhelming. And above all, we can rest in the confidence that our investment in people is work that really, really matters. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.